Hi, so I'm Dr. Brian Lima. I'm one of the cardiac surgeons uh, here at North Shore University Hospital, and I'm the surgical director of the heart transplant program and one of the lead surgeons in the mechanical circulatory support program that includes LVAD, assist devices, uh, and ECMO. Uh, today I'll be providing a broad overview of uh, the therapeutic strategies and options for advanced heart failure uh, that include short-term support with devices as well as durable support with either a heart transplant or an implantable left ventricular assist device. So we're in the middle of a heart failure epidemic both globally and nationally with an estimated 6 million Americans uh, affected and this is estimated to uh, increase to over 8 million by the year 2030. Uh, and This has a lot to do with our aging population uh, as well as uh, Clinically, our ability to uh, improve survival in patients with myocardial infarction with stents, uh, medications, and surgery. As far as uh, the, the progression to so-called advanced heart failure, you can see the stepwise progression of both symptoms and level of uh, therapeutic uh, strategy. And as you can see, eventually the, the heart failure progresses to a point beyond which medications alone can really address the problem. And that's where you get to this region here, where really you're talking about adrenaline medications, which are only a short uh, or temporary uh, therapeutic strategy, and uh, some form of heart replacement therapy, whether that be a ventricular assist device or a heart transplant, and unfortunately, in some cases, hospice. If you look at the scope of advanced heart failure, uh, and you think of it from the perspective of that we have 300 million people, about 3% of which have some form of heart failure. Half of that is systolic heart failure. And then when you whittle that down further to advanced heart failure, that is class 3B or 4 heart failure, uh, you're talking about approximately two to 300,000 patients that would theoretically be candidates uh, for some form of advanced heart replacement therapy, such as a transplant or uh, a heart pump. Looking at it more locally, see here the numbers, uh, if you think that uh, about 3% of the population is at risk, uh, here you have here on Long Island 30,000 in Suffolk and 28,000 people uh, in Nassau with advanced heart failure, with, uh, with heart failure. Of those totally in this region, you're talking about 10,000 patients with uh, advanced heart failure. To put it in perspective, um, if you compare heart failure to other uh, you know, diseases such as cancers, uh, the survival uh, of heart failure is worse than uh, colon cancer and breast cancer and on par with that of lung cancer. And I think that's really uh, a message that's not uh, transmitted effectively to the, to the general population where cancers uh, definitely get more uh, research funding and uh, have more uh, public awareness. So uh, when we talk about heart transplant, uh, we're talking about a procedure whereby um, a heart is uh, removed out of a donor and then uh, sewn into a recipient. Uh, it's been around for a while. The first heart transplant was done approximately 50 years ago. We just had the 50th anniversary on December 3rd, and it was done by Dr. Christian Barnard in South Africa. And what we can say is that over the years, um, survival after a heart transplant has gotten better. This is a Kaplan-Meier survival curve, and you can see that over time, uh, with each progressive era, our survival curves have gotten continually better, such that now in the current era, we can quote patients an average survival of about 12 years. 
So uh, even though it's uh, been around for 50 years, heart transplant is still considered the gold standard therapy for advanced heart failure. And it's also not uh, a therapy restricted to young patients. This is a study conducted uh, from my previous institution at Baylor in Dallas, where we looked at our experience of heart transplant in patients over the age of 65. And we found that in appropriately selected patients, uh, survival was equivalent to younger patients. So uh, with all the good things that heart transplant has to offer, the one negative obviously is it's a supply and demand issue. And here you could see the number of heart transplants done throughout the world since 1982. And you could see that really over the last 20 to 30 years, we've been doing approximately 2,500 to 3,000 heart transplants in the U.S. And that number has remained relatively fixed. The problem there is, as I mentioned earlier, there's up to 300,000 people in the United States that would technically derive benefit from a heart transplant, but there's really only a, a small number to meet that demand. Here at um, North Shore, uh, we, in a very quick period of time, uh, launched a heart transplant program to address the need uh, for patients on Long Island who uh, historically have had to travel to Manhattan uh, to get this level of advanced therapy. And uh, after finally getting uh, New York Department of Health approval to launch uh, and start our wait list on February 1st, we had our first, second, third, and fourth heart transplants in short order uh, within two months. And I'm happy to report also that we had our fifth heart transplant on April 1st and our sixth heart transplant uh, last week, making us one of the fastest starting heart transplant programs in history. But really to overcome the shortage of available donor hearts to meet the demand of patients with, uh, afflicted with advanced heart failure, we've witnessed a revolution in medicine that I like to call the rise of the machines, uh, namely left ventricular assist devices. These are heart pumps that are inserted into the heart. This is a case of mine from uh, an intraoperative photo showing a HeartMate 2 left ventricular assist device that's being inserted into the apex of the left ventricle. And here you can see sort of a cartoon schematic. What this way these, these pumps work is that they basically remove or drain all the blood from the left ventricle, propel it through this pump, and then you sew the other end, the outflow graft to the aorta, where you're essentially bypassing the left, left ventricle. And uh, patients can have pretty active lifestyles. Uh, there is this external power source uh, that limits the, the patient's uh, lifestyle with respect to being able to submerge in water. So they can't take tub baths, they can't get in swimming pools or go into the ocean. But essentially, almost anything else you can think of, patients with LVADs have done. Uh, so it's definitely been very impactful. And there's also mechanical options for replacing the heart completely with the pump in patients with advanced biventricular failure, uh, which I will get into in subsequent slides. So um, what we've seen in our field is basically an explosion an exponential rise in the number of uh, these heart pumps being implanted throughout the world, where uh, less than 100 were implanted in 2006, where now, if you plot this out to the, the last couple of years, it's way out here, that's almost a 2,000% increase in the number of these pumps implanted throughout the world. And like many other things in medicine, with time, with repetition, uh, the outcomes for these devices continue to improve such that now they rival uh, or are on par with that of heart transplant. In many studies, uh, you can see now survival of uh, 90% at one year. And that also is accompanied not just by improvements in survival, 
but also improvements in quality of life and functional capacity. Um, and as you can see here, this is a representative graph of about 10,000 implants between 2008 and 2013. One of the things we've learned in the field is patient selection is absolutely essential and key. So uh, the way we categorize patients with advanced heart failure is uh, using the so-called Intermax uh, levels. This is, uh, stands for Interagency Registry for Mechanical Circulatory Support. And within this classification system, you have seven levels. Level one is the so-called crashing and burning patient that um, is really, really in the hemodynamic extremis. They are uh, very, very uh, close to, uh, to dying uh, without some intervention on the order of minutes to hours or at most a day. Then you go to Intermax level two, where you have patients that are being supported on inotropes, but they're sliding fast, quote unquote, meaning even though you have them on inotropes, they still have evidence of end organ dysfunction that's progressing. Finally, you have Intermax level three. These are patients that have uh, been shown to be inotrope dependent, but can uh, either be in the hospital or at home on inotropes. Finally, Intermax level four is patients that have symptoms at rest of heart failure, but are on oral therapy and not requiring inotropes yet, and then five, six, and seven kind of uh, less severe uh, forms of heart failure. Currently, uh, there's very little debate as to uh, patients meeting indications for LVAD within Intermax levels one, two, and three. Uh, there is some debate about whether four and five also, uh, but as you can imagine, patients that are uh, sicker, have more advanced heart failure, like the Intermax level ones, those patients do worse with the LVAD than patients that are not as ill, such as level two, and obviously four through seven. Another uh, major uh, impetus to improve outcomes uh, in patients has been optimizing the positioning of these pumps to eliminate the risk of complications such as pump thrombosis, um, and pump infection. And um, I and others have um, spearheaded initiatives to really study in greater detail from a, a radiographic perspective uh, what a normal or correctly positioned uh, pump should look like. So this is the result of a recent study we conducted where we were able to, uh, through 4D gated CT scans of patients implanted with left ventricular assist devices, um, create a, a novel uh, coordinate system in 3D to uh, pinpoint areas uh, or indices of malposition of the inflow cannula. So typically, if you have just a two-dimensional image like a chest X-ray, uh, these are the, uh, the extent of the sort of measurements and angles that you can derive, uh, but this is all from a two-dimensional image. Uh, in contrast with this coordinate model that's 3D, you can actually quantify the um, angles of the inflow cannula away from the uh, z-axis, which is the axis through uh, and parallel to the long axis of the LV facing the mitral valve. Um, and you can measure those angles of deviation. And here we have five representative examples of malpositioned pumps in the upper panel and correctly positioned pumps in the lower panel. And what we did is come up with the quantitative differences between these two sets of, of cases. Here you can see a correctly positioned pump where um, the inflow cannula is visible, that is the orifice of the inflow cannula is visible uh, from uh, the perspective of the mitral annulus. 
and it's uh, facing or almost directly facing the mitral valve. Here you have a malposition pump where uh, you have significant angle of deviation away from the mitral uh, apparatus. Uh, and here in the same short axis view, you, can, you cannot make out the orifice of the inflow cannula. So uh, what we found is in the malpositioned pumps relative to the normally positioned pumps, there were three significant differences. One was the depth of uh, insert, uh, or the distance between the mitral apparatus or annulus and the inflow cannula. In the normal patients, this was a, a significantly greater distance away. And this is impacted by the pump pocket itself, um, which I'll get into in subsequent slides. And also the angle of deviation uh, was uh, improved in the normal pumps. So while uh, LVADs have certainly made a sizable impact in, in the treatment of advanced heart failure to overcome the, the, the shortage of donor hearts available for transplant, LVAD is not a one-size-fits-all uh, uh, type of therapy, meaning not all kinds of heart failure are the same. Uh, here you have a normal heart, and then the classic dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, where you have a dilated left ventricle that's thinned out with, a, with good size, but you have a relatively normal right ventricle, is sort of the ideal setting that meets the, requ the requisite uh, indications for LVAD candidacy. That is, you have to have univentricular failure, just left-sided failure, and you have to have a big enough chamber for the inflow cannula of the LVAD to fit. And that number is somewhere in the neighborhood of greater than or equal to five centimeters when you measure the distance across the diameter across the LV chamber in diastole. But there are other kinds of heart failure. You have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where the ventricular walls become very, very thickened and you have a very small chamber. You also have arrhythmogenic heart failure or cardiomyopathies where you have uh, a biventricular failure and again, chamber size is not adequate. You may have some form of a restrictive cardiomyopathy with normal chamber size. And you may also have things like LV non-compaction where you have extensive trabeculation formation in the chamber that really wouldn't allow you anatomically to place an inflow cannula. So unfortunately, in these types of scenarios, an LVAD is not appropriate. And so heart transplant is still the, the necessary endpoint in order to treat these patients. Another where we can see that LVADs and the mechanical circulatory support has impacted heart transplant is the proportion of patients presenting to transplant with an implanted device. You can see that in the year 2000, less than 20% of the patients at the time of transplant had a uh, pre-existing implantable device. Fast forward to current times where the majority of patients now, in some cases 60% or more, have had some prior heart surgery with an implantable device. Has collectively made heart transplants a little more difficult in the sense that these are technically much more uh, difficult and extensive operations. Here you can see the breakdown and that the vast majority of these cases, it's an LVAD that was used to bridge the patient. So we have a growing arsenal of chronic uh, MCS support, meaning there are different kinds of uh, ventricular assist devices. Uh, here you have the HeartMate 2 device, uh, the one that's been around the longest with the greatest number of implants. You also have its, uh, the newly developed HeartMate 3, smaller, which we'll get into. You also have HVADs, which in some cases have been used um, not only to provide singular uh, ventricular support, but biventricular support if two are implanted. And you have the total artificial heart. What we know from experience and repetition is that 
these implantable devices, where you do a, a, a pretty big operation to implant these devices, is ideal in patients that are optimized, meaning they're not the crashing and burning Intermax 1 patients, but the more stable, relatively more stable Intermax 2 or greater patients. These devices are implanted as a bridge to transplant or can be implanted as a destination therapy, DT, meaning that for whatever reason, the patient does not meet heart transplant criteria, and so the device stays with them for the rest of their life. And there are patients out even a decade or more with these devices. We've gotten better also, as I mentioned before, at improving complications such as pump thrombosis by being more mindful of how these pumps are positioned. And there is the growing and vexing problem of how you manage biventricular failure, such as uh, do you uh, use a total artificial heart to replace both ventricles or do you implant two uh, bi uh, ventricular assist devices to function as a bivad? The only FDA-approved device um, for biventricular support is a total artificial heart, uh, where 80% of the patients uh, make it to heart transplant. As I mentioned, the most recent pump to be introduced to the market is the HeartMate 3. Um, it entails a, a fully magnetically levitated rotor with very few moving parts, no bearings, wider gaps, so that in essence the blood is less traumatized as it travels through the pump. Um, I was part of the uh, trial uh, design and development, and uh, at Baylor I was the principal investigator for our site. And as you can see, we were the first on Long Island to implant the HeartMate 3 and had a great outcome there. And you can see that the recent data for uh, this study uh, of the HeartMate 3 was recently published in the New England Journal, both the one and two year outcomes. And suffice it to say that these are landmark outcomes. Um, there's the short-term cohort, which is the 2017 New England Journal publication, and the long-term cohort, which I'll get into. The main take-home point is that uh, better than ever before, uh, we are seeing uh, stroke-free and reoperation-free survival of 80-plus percent at one year for these new-generation HeartMate 3 pumps. And this is in comparison to the uh, previous generation HeartMate 2. These are very, very remarkable outcomes and really a testament to how far the field has come such that now patients can be offered these devices and realize that their survival uh, probability is on par with that if they were getting a transplant. The other major um, advance that we've seen with this HeartMate 3 device is that there had been very little, if any, pump thromboses uh, observed in this new pump compared to the older generation pumps where up to 15 to 20% uh, had some degree of pump thrombosis and even many of them required reoperation to exchange the pump. There were no uh, reoperations requiring pump exchange uh, in the new generation pumps, which is again another massive uh, advance for the field. Uh, stroke rates uh, were also improved with the newer pump. Again, there is obviously some room for improvement. We love to see these numbers lower, but uh, this is as low as we've seen in any study. So 10% stroke rate compared to almost a 20% stroke rate with the older generation pumps. I think uh, given how much the field has advanced, I think the tin man, if he had to reconsider his uh, choice, would have opted for a VAD instead of a heart, I think, but I can't be sure. The LVAD uh, program at uh, North Shore uh, and Sandra Atlas Bass Heart Hospital of North Shore has uh, began in April of 2016. 
where for calendar uh, year 2016, we did seven. And remarkably, in calendar year 17, we did 33 pump implants, which again puts us right at the uh, upper uh, echelon of and one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing LVAD programs in the country. And we modeled the success of our LVAD program to then uh, create and launch our heart transplant program. So we've talked about heart transplant, we've talked about LVADs, so chronic uh, durable support uh, to replace the heart. But what we've also seen is an increasing role for temporary devices. Uh, MCS stands for mechanical circulatory support. So there's been a huge boom in the number of temporary options for mechanical circulatory support that include things like the intraortic balloon pump, which has been around for a while, ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, percutaneous LVADs, or LVAD on a stick, as I like to call them, so as LVADs loaded onto a catheter, and recently RVADs that are loaded onto a catheter. And what purpose do these devices serve? Well, first off, they're intended to stabilize patients that are really in hemodynamic extremis, those Intermax 1 patients. The idea with these devices is that you recover some end organ dysfunction. These devices also allowed uh, you to decipher candidacy for heart transplant versus LVAD, meaning is this patient a heart transplant candidate or an LVAD candidate or none of the above? And uh, it's beyond the scope of this presentation, but newly uh, designed allocation policy for donor hearts, patients that are supported with these uh, types of devices will uh, have higher uh, listing statuses and therefore will be easier to transplant directly when they're supported with these devices. These devices also help in patients that have already gotten a heart transplant, but that one that's been complicated by primary graft dysfunction, where in the first 24 to 48 hours, the new heart needs uh, additional support uh, to, to be stabilized. And as uh, you can see, these uh, various device options offer variable levels of support such as the balloon pump only offers about 15% full circulatory support, whereas the uh, ECMO and Impella 5.0 can offer up to 100% support. The trends in these devices, as you can see here, is, the, is a tremendous increase, and, and there's sort of a, uh, a shift that occurred somewhere around 2007, as highlighted in this uh, relatively recent Jack article, where can see a steep rise in the uh, number of short-term MCS, both percutaneous and non-percutaneous devices implanted here, and permanent, and that's accompanied the rate of the uh, permanent mechanical circulatory support devices on this curve. And meanwhile, um, balloon pumps have remained relatively stable. The survival also, uh, or mortality I should say, has also improved over time and stabilized out with these devices. And uh, I'd like to go over each of these in, in, in some level of detail to provide perspective on where they fit in our armamentarium. So we talked first about ECMO, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And this is basically a portable form of the heart-lung machine that we use in everyday heart surgery, where you have uh, blood taken out of the body through a cannula in a vein, brought to this pump, which adds oxygen back to the blood, and then brings that blood back to the body through an artery. So you have to connect with a hose or cannula in the artery and in the vein to achieve veno-arterial ECMO. 
Um, at North Shore, our ECMO program uh, really uh, began to take off in 2017, as you can see with 30 uh, implants compared to low single-digit numbers in the pre previous years. And the way it works um, is, is depicted here in sort of one of the more classic uh, cannulation configurations. And this is uh, derived from a recent review article that uh, I co-authored with some colleagues at Baylor. And basically, the pros and cons of VA ECMO are as follows. Uh, theoretically, ECMO can provide full biventricular support, both right and left. It's relatively easy to insert, meaning this is something that can be done at the bedside using Seldinger technique. Um, and there's a, a number of different cannulation configurations. So you can use the femoral arteries and the groin, the axillary arteries, and you can cannulate centrally. Um, the cons are that uh, there's a fair amount of data that's, that uh, suggests that with ECMO, you don't really get afterload reduction. If anything, you get increase in afterload. This um, cannula here that's in the artery with a return cannula to the leg to provide flow to the leg, this cannula is carrying oxygenated blood up the aorta towards the heart. So it's sort of beating against the, the, the outflow of the heart so you can see how that would increase your afterload. The other complications that can arise with ECMO is ischemic uh, complications, because again, you have a pretty sizable cannula in uh, vessels that may have atherosclerotic plaque, and you can also have bleeding around uh, the cannulation site. So there are a number of limb complications, unfortunate, that you can see uh, with ECMO. ECMO is growing in prevalence uh, throughout the country and the world. As you can see, in 1990, there were really only 83 centers uh, doing a little over 1,600 cases, where in 2014, that number tripled, more than tripled, with 5,000 cases being done. And as far as outcomes, this is from the uh, ECLS registry, uh, ELSO, and you can see that in um, 5,600 VA ECMO cases used for cardiogenic shock, about 56% survive, and then 41% actually make it out of the hospital. And then for eCPR, that's when ECMO is uh, placed in the setting of ongoing chest compressions for CPR. Uh, you can imagine that those are obviously more critically ill uh, patients and extremists. Uh, their survival is less. Uh, nonetheless, you, you can imagine that these would be zero uh, if this uh, method wasn't even used. So 39% versus 0% and 28% versus zero. So obviously there's some room for improvement, but these are vast uh, improvements compared to um, not doing anything at all for some of these patients. As far as complications, this meta-analysis catalogs some of the uh, ECMO-related uh, complications that can happen, particularly in the lower extremities. So this is VA uh, ECMO, and you can see uh, lower extremity infection rates, stroke rates, Acute kidney injury obviously is very common. 50% of patients develop acute kidney injury requiring dialysis, bleeding related to the cannulation, and you know, unfortunately, some people require amputation or some uh, fasciotomy uh, because of the glue complications. In recognition of some of the difficulties that can arise with femoral arterial cannulation, uh, we decided, uh, well, the Cleveland Clinic decided. Uh, a while back to explore with uh, greater uh, interest cannulation of the axillary artery right under the clavicle by sewing a graft to the axillary and then uh, placing the cannula through the graft. This is a technique done in aortic surgery frequently when uh, hypothermic circulatory arrest is required. And so uh, this provides a, a, 
a relatively easy way to get arterial uh, access. And it also eliminates the, the worry and concern about having something in the groin. You can sit people up, you can extubate them. And so in 2013, we released our series, the largest series ever published of axillary artery cannulation for ECMO, which included 80 patients. So a quarter of all the patients on VA ECMO. And the one unique complication that you see with this type of configuration is a so-called hyperperfusion syndrome, where the blood flow, instead of going centrally to the torso, for whatever reason, goes towards the arm, uh, where the little arm can get very edematous and swollen. And in those instances, you have to revise the cannulation by restricting the outflow here so that the, the flow is uh, preferentially directed centrally. But compared to femoral cannulation, we saw significantly less bleeding complications or limb complications overall. This type of cannulation affords uh, a strategy to uh, stabilize patients while they're waiting for a transplant. This is a recent case report we published in a patient that um, was awaiting transplant and became unstable. We were able to cannulate him through the axillary and subclavian. Uh, we were able to extubate him, get him on a treadmill, get him on an exercise bike in the hospital, and eventually he got transplanted. As I mentioned before, the new allocation system that's going to be introduced, these types of strategies will become more prevalent. Some detail on the acute or short-term MCS options that I uh, hinted at before. You uh, these are devices that, um, from a pro perspective, theoretically can provide full support as a full support LVAD or full support RVAD. Uh, they're peripherally inserted, so you are avoiding a sternotomy. The cons are that there's some logistics and expertise required for insertion of these. These aren't things that you can just put in at the bedside uh, at the drop of the, uh, of the hat like you can with ECMO. There you have to get these patients to a floral capable bed. Usually you're in a cath lab and you have to have the catheter skills to be able to place these correctly. And they are also have uh, some bleeding and hemolysis related complications. But um, here's the Impella 5.0, which is placed through an axillary graft that's basically functions as a percutaneous left ventricular assist device. You have the Impella RP, which is placed through the femoral vein, which can function as a percutaneous right ventricular assist device. This is the Protect Duo, which was recently introduced, and this functions as a percutaneous RVAD, but it's inserted through the jugular, uh, much like a Swan-Gans catheter. And you also have the tandem left-sided device that fires interatrial uh, septal puncture. At Baylor, we wrote up our series of using the Impella 5.0 as a bridge to either heart transplant or durable LVAD. This is the largest series in the literature uh, for this type of modality. We had 40 patients, half of which were uh, as a bridge to transplant, half as a bridge to LVAD. And with this strategy, we're able to achieve um, 75% uh, survival to either transplant or VAD and, and great outcomes afterwards. So uh, putting this all together, um, there's a lot of tools in, um, in our armamentarium and how do we uh, practically use these um, in everyday clinical medicine for patients with severe shock, where severe shock refers to uh, very, very poor hemodynamics, cardiac index less than 1.5, wedge pressures uh, greater than 30, EDP greater than 30, on two or more active basal medications. So one point of emphasis I'd like to make is that to be able to determine if someone is in severe shock or to really determine what the next move should be, you really do need a Swan-Gans catheter. A Swan-Gans pulmonary arterial catheter is critical in really being able to 
determine what algorithmic approach you should take for these very, very complicated patients. So the proposed algorithm uh, uh, based on this data is if you have someone in refractory cardiogenic shock and they're actually in cardiac arrest that's persistent, for someone in persistent cardiac arrest, you go straight to VA ECMO. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes that's difficult. It may mean doing it right at the bedside in less than ideal location. Uh, but this is, uh, there's no real uh, time available to try to orchestrate an impella or things like that. This, this requires something now. And then once you have the patient stabilized on ECMO uh, and you have your Swan-Gans catheter, you can determine if you have adequate unloading of the LV by looking at your pulmonary arterial pressures. Uh, and that will determine whether you need to place a LV vent, which you can do using an impella as a percutaneous LVAD to decompress the left ventricle. Now, for patients that uh, are in refractory shock but they're not in cardiac arrest, you have to determine and decipher, is this biventricular failure and are they hypoxemic uh, or have respiratory failure? If the answer to any of these is yes, then again, you can go straight to ECMO, determine if you have adequate LV unloading, and if not, put it in an impella. If you feel that this is really univentricular failure, left-sided failure, then you can try just an impella first. If on an impella support, you progress to biventricular failure or hypoxemic lung failure or inadequate uh, organ perfusion as manifest by progressive multi-organ failure or hemodynamic deterioration, then you would have to either try to provide percutaneous support for the right ventricle separately, such as with an impella RP, or go straight to VA ECMO, um, and you already have your LV vent in place. What we know is once you're on ECMO, um, for patients that actually um, survive, you should see a relatively precipitous drop in lactate levels. So measuring lactate levels is extremely critical uh, in the first, uh, in the early phase of ECMO support, and certainly on a daily basis. But you should really see um, a precipitous drop in lactate levels over the course of six to 12 hours. If you don't see a drop in lactate, then, then something is wrong. Either you're not adequately perfusing the patient uh, or there's some other complication. I think to put it all together, the guiding logistics for um, acute refractory shock, if you have someone that's crashing and burning, the so-called Intermax 0.5 uh, with multi-system organ failure, uh, this is not the case that you're going to go and take to the operating room and do a big left ventricular assisted by surgery. This I liken to resurrection surgery. Here is a case where you really want to try to do something fast and percutaneous, if at all possible, to stabilize the patient. So whether or not the patient is crashing and burning is a very, very important guiding logistic. Secondly, what is going on with the right ventricle? Is this truly biventricular failure or is this really just left-sided failure? This has huge ramifications for what the eventual destination of that patient is going to be. Is this patient an LVAD candidate uh, or really needs a transplant? As part of that evaluation, when you do your echocardiographic evaluation, this will help determine the anatomy of the heart. Is this a small LV chamber or a large LV chamber? As I mentioned before, if it's a small LV chamber, then you're not really going to be able to place an LVAD. Looking at echo also allows you to assess the valves. Um, if you have significant aortic stenosis or aortic valvular insufficiency, that's going to put a hand, that's going to really make it difficult for you to vent the LV if necessary using an impella. So you'll have to come up with an alternative strategy. Also, uh, in some cases, you have to determine 
is this someone that you're going to actually have to cannulate centrally? And so it's important to know if they have had prior sternotomy. Um, and of course, uh, the most important uh, logistic of all is what is this a bridge to? Uh, you have to have an understanding in your mind from at the time of your intervention, whether it's placing somebody on ECMO or putting in an impella, what is the eventual destination? Is this a bridge to nowhere, or is this really a bridge to recovery or transplant or LVAT? And as the most interesting man in the world says, um, I don't always get stuck with refractory cardiogenic shock, but when I do, I carefully consider all options, and so should you. In conclusion, uh, the trends point towards an ever-increasing proportion of heart failure patients requiring conventional and advanced cardiac care. Heart transplant remains the gold standard therapy for advanced heart failure, limited obviously by the supply of available donor hearts. As a consequence, mechanical circulatory support has uh, risen to the occasion and will continue to evolve and provide the greatest hope probably for the greatest number of heart failure patients. And along with this um, change in paradigm shift has been the emergence of acute mechanical circulatory support options for cardiogenic shock, such as, such as percutaneous LVADs and RVADs. And along the way, we've also gotten better at our durable implantable VADs that we implant with the intention of either bridging to transplant or as a destination therapy. Thank you very much.